you can open up Genesis chapter 1, and then after you open up the Genesis chapter 1, do this. Go like this. Go like that. There's this guy, Cason Armstrong, sitting right there. He taught my boys this. Whenever he gets excited, he goes like this. Like at a football game or something, he'll go like that. I'm excited about Genesis. We're going to begin. Gen- I've never preached on Genesis before. Jared is excited about it. Ken is excited about it. Trevor is. I don't know about Derek, but I am. So do that. We're excited. Genesis chapter 1. We are going to just begin at the very beginning. In fact, that's what the book Genesis means. The beginning. If you notice, we just have Genesis right up there in the corner and completely black and there's nothing up there. This is going to be a progressive stage. As we go to each message, it will get progressively better, more vibrant. But if you notice, there's nothing because before anything began, God was. And God has always been. And so the title of our message today is The Unrivaled God because there's nobody to rival Him. There's nobody like Him. There's nobody to compare with Him because He was before all things. He created all things, so all of those things can't compare to the Creator Himself. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is what we're going to study today. So this is going to take a long time to go through the book. Verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I'm going to really center my message on the first four words. Because so much is said in the first four words. And I would even say this. Maybe, just maybe, the first four words are the most important words in the whole Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Before the sun, before the moon, stars, before there was grass, before there was even people, there was only God. The word God in the Hebrew is, you might have heard of this term, it's the word Elohim. Elohim, in a way, is a generic term for God. It's an ancient word. But in the Hebrew, it's written in the plural form. So the I am ending, Elohim, is a plural ending. However, it's always with a singular article because God is one. Some scholars will point out it's plural because it's foreshadowing the idea of the Trinity. Possibly, because look at verse 2. It says the Spirit of God in capital, was over the face of the water. So it's already separating God and the Spirit of God. So there's a hint at the very beginning that this God is unique. He's plural, but we'll get into that later. Because as all Christians believe, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But today we're just going to focus on theology proper. Theology means the study of God. And proper is on just Himself, the Father Specifically. In this opening salvo, in the beginning, God, there are a few things that are assumed. It doesn't argue anything, it just assumes some things. James Murphy writes, it assumes, number one, his existence. He is. It assumes his eternality. He has always been, he always will be, 
and he always was. That's why it's interesting in a book of Hebrews, when it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it's talking about he's eternal. And James Murphy also writes, since he is before all things, and since nothing comes from nothing, he must have always been. So there's nobody that made him. He always was. What's interesting, you talk to evolutionists, they think that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So where did everything come from? Well, the Big Bang. All right, what did that come from? It's the same dilemma. It's the same dilemma. But what we believe is there was personality in the Creator. He was a person. And if He wasn't a person, you can't make people. Just sheer matter can't make thinking emotional people. So we believe that God always was, and He is the original mover, is the way philosophers put it. And then James Murphy writes this, and this verse also implies that God is absolutely free to do whatever He wants to do. He doesn't need your opinion on what's right or wrong. He doesn't ask for our advice. He's free. He can do anything he wants. After the first service, somebody said, yeah, but he's lonely, that's why he made us. He wasn't lonely. He was in the Trinity perfectly, perfectly in community with his Son and the Spirit. They made us in the same way a mother and a father have children. They want to share their love. That's why God created people. He wanted to share himself, his beauty, his goodness with all of the people he made. So from a simple reading of the first four words, we learn God's eternal, God exists, and God is free. And He still will be when the earth explodes and we are long dead. God still will be. Even if the earth gets hit by a meteorite or if the sun after maybe a million years burns out, God still will be. And since he is the one who brought existence, he won't be phased personally if it all falls apart. It's a lot to think about, but this is our God. This is our unrivaled God. The writer James Murphy continues, this simple statement also denies a few things. doesn't just imply some things, it denies some things. Listen to what it denies. It denies polytheism, that there's a multiplicity of gods. You can choose whatever God you want. Denies that. Says there's only one God. It denies dualism. Dualism is this idea that there's two eternal beings. One is good and one is bad. Some people believe Satan is, Satan is the personification of evil and he fights God as the personification of good. No. Satan is created. God is the creator. There's no dualism. In fact, evil is an aberrance of good. It's good that's crooked. That's all it is. He also writes this sentence, denies materialism. That means everything just comes from matter. It denies pantheism, meaning God is a part of creation. No, God's outside of creation. It denies fatalism, which means that we are living in a machine and we can't change it. No, we're living in God's world. This is the Father's world. We are under His sovereign care. The topic of God is the most important topic of all topics and always will be the most important topic because nothing else matters but God. In fact, nothing ever existed without God. 
And so we need to take some time right here. You could call this the introductory message, but this is the most important message because God is the most important being. He didn't have to make us. He didn't have to reveal anything to us. In fact, this book, this book of Genesis and this whole Bible is his attempt to show you himself. He didn't have to write this. He didn't have to make you. But he wrote it to reveal himself. That's why it's called Revelation. Revelation is the idea of a play. So you have a play and you have everybody behind this, the curtains. Revelation is when the curtain opens and you can finally see. If God chose not to give us this book, we wouldn't know who he is, what he's like, or what he's doing. That's what this whole study of Genesis is about. He wrote this Bible so we could get to know him. So we could understand him. I think A.W. Tozier said it best when he wrote this in the book of the Knowledge of the Holy. It's quite a book, Knowledge of the Holy. But he said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is strange. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, while the existence, eternality, and the freedom of God is true, the Bible right here says it's true, in the beginning God. So that's a statement of fact. That's fact. That means if you're going to scrape the surface of reality, if you're going to rip open the heavens, God is. He's there. However, what matters even more is how you view it. How you view it. Do you believe it? When I say how you view it, I mean say that do you honestly believe right now, right now, in this moment, and every moment, how you think about God determines who you will be? It does. I remember the first time I heard that. It was about the second year as a believer, and I was reading that book. And I'm like, is that really true? The way I think about God is the most important thing about me? I'm not sure. I really am not sure. I think that's one of those cool, you know, cool theological statements that you hear in seminary and say, wow, that's really cool. But is that true? The way I think about God is the most important thing about me? And I'm going to show you, not only is it, have I seen it as a pastor, but I'm going to show you the three most important things that you think about God. Based on not only this verse, but every single day of your life. Here's the three questions that I think you need to answer. Do I really believe he exists? Do I really believe that? I mean, I can read this. A lot of people read this and they say, oh, that's nice. That's nice. That would be nice on a card that I give to my grandmother with a horizon in the background. And I close the Bible and I act like I didn't read it. I'm talking about, do you really believe right now he sees you? Second question, do you really think he's good or not? Is he for you? That is how you answer that. Oh, it affects everything you do. It affects everything you do. And then the third question is, do I really believe he's powerful or not? So these are the things we need to kind of just think about. Because he says in here, in the beginning, God. But do you believe that? What, is he good? And is he powerful? 
And I'm just going to ask you to really think about it. This is more of a devotional sermon than it is a just... Sometimes sermons are just to give you information. This is to get you to say in the quiet of your heart when you're alone at Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock or you're driving down the road and maybe your sister's sick. These are the kind of questions you have to have answered. You need to know. And so we're going to ponder it and I'm going to offer every single question only has two answers. And how you answer it really matters. So the first question, does God exist? Is God really up there or not? And so as we sit here in this room, does God actually live in heaven? Is he watching? Is he reading your mind? Is it really true what Psalm 139 says, that he knows when you sit and when you stand? He knows when you go to the end of the sea. He knows when you sleep. He knows when you rise. Before you were made, he knew you intimately. He knows every book every day that's written in your book of your life? Is that true? You answer this question by the way you live, and I do not mean that lightly. Does this eternal God and free God that we just read about exist? And there's only two answers. No, I don't believe that. Or yes. Either you do or you don't. There is this uh, popular third way, and I think it's the most popular, and I think it's very popular with people in here. There's this belief that I can kind of ride the fence. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It's called agnosticism. Actually, agnosticism means I don't know. I was talking, actually, Paul, you're right. It's not just I don't know, but it's, it's, it morphs into, and I don't care. I don't care. And if you say I don't know, and if you say I don't care, it's actually you are acting practically as if you've answered it no. You are choosing not to make a choice. And when you choose not to make a choice, you are voting no. You are actually hoping, you are banking, that while you're waiting to make your choice, God doesn't act as the free moral agent that he is. That's your hoping he doesn't act. It's like sitting in the middle of a highway. You're sitting in a chair in the middle of a highway and a truck is barreling towards you. Agnosticism is when you close your eyes and you say, I don't believe that truck's there. I don't believe it. I'm just, I'm just choosing not to believe it. Because really, your life's like a vapor and the truck's coming. Fast. So what if the answer is no? Let's say the answer is no. Let's say you're right. Let's say you're right and the answer's No. If God does not exist, the implications are horrible. I mean, they're really bad. And most people who are either atheists or agnostic don't really passionately believe it like they think they do. For instance, if God does not exist, nothing matters. Who cares? Who really cares, honestly? Who cares about what's right, what's just, what's decent, what should be allowed or what should be forbidden, what's good, what's bad, what's cruel, what's kind, what's fair? Who cares if a baby gets its head smashed in? Who cares? There's nobody to judge that. You can't just say, well, I don't believe, but you're a bad person. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any meaning. It's sort of like, imagine you have four four four-year-old kids that all live in the same house and mom and dad are dead upstairs in their bed. 
Who cares if the older brother hurt the little sister? Who cares if the toy has been stolen? Who cares if somebody's sick? There's nobody to care for that sick person. Who's going to give the naughty kid a time out? No one, because nobody cares. Who cares about racism, really, if there's no God? Why do we argue about it? Who really cares? The Nazis were right. Who cares? Why is anything wrong if there's no eternal court? You don't just have the freedom to, to make the position of agnosticism or atheism and then try to argue some moral point. It doesn't matter. It's funny, you do, you do funerals for atheists and they, they cry. Why are you crying? They're just dirt. Second thing, if God does not exist, there's no escape because you will die. Death wins. You could work your whole life, save up to have a big retirement, get cancer, and die. And all memories are, all memories of my dad, because I loved my dad, but if death, if there's no God and there's no eternal existence and he just dies, my memories are nothing but a nightmare of something that did exist and will never exist again. They actually haunt me. And life's a joke. Really, if, you, if you're going to be honest, this answer's horrible. But here's the problem with answering no. There's a philosophical problem taking the firm, convinced position of no. There's what's called a philosophical impossibility of proving a negative. It's impossible. You can't prove that something does not exist. Only if you have all knowledge. For instance, for a while, a lot of people thought swans all were white. There's only white swans. Little kids would have little books with a white swan. And the author says, see, all swans are white. But did you know there are black swans, even if you never saw it? There are some black swans. I was reading this book. It's very fascinating. In the early 1800s, the uh, medical professionals, some of them did not believe in this new thing called a microscope in bacteria. They didn't believe in bacteria. So a lot of times, after they would amputate a leg that was maybe diseased or had gangrene, they would take that same implement and use it in surgical operations without washing it. And they would infect the well body, and they, they didn't know what was going on. Well, it's because they didn't believe in something they couldn't see, called bacteria. And just because you can't see God doesn't prove he doesn't exist. To be very careful, because what if he does? And the truck is barreling towards you. And on the side of the truck is written, holy, holy, holy. So if the conclusions of answering no are so stark, why do so many people choose not to believe? Why is there a general agnosticism where people think they can wait most of their life before they commit to God? Why do most Christians live as practical atheists? where they come on church on Sunday say, yeah, I believe, and then go and live like they don't. Why? Because Psalm 14:1 says we're conflicted. The fool, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. The fool is the person that has information but chooses not to live as if it's true. Or Romans 1 puts it like this. Although you, they knew God, they, dis, they did not give him thanks or him glory, and they suppressed knowledge. So in other words, Romans 1 said, you know, but you don't listen. 
we suppress it. That is why people answer no. Even though it's true, they just don't want it to be true. So they suppress it. But let's say you start really contemplating this and you say, okay, I believe he exists. Then that goes to the next question. Is he good? I think agnosticism is so prevalent because a lot of people don't think he's good. They can't really trust him. They think in the back, in the back of God's characters, there is a germ of badness. I mean, he says he's good, but not wholly good. If there's one part of God that isn't good, then he's not good at all. The Bible says he's infinitely good. That means he's thoroughly good. Through and through, there is not one thing wrong with him. But if you ever doubt his motives, you are saying he is not thoroughly good. And if he's not thoroughly good, he's not good at all. Because you never know. Do you trust him? Is God truly good at all times? And so if there's ever a time you don't trust him, you don't think he's good. In fact, all unbelief, lack of prayer, lack of religious desire, lack of commitment, lack of trust, all come back to this small germ that I'm not sure he's really that trustworthy. If you thought he was thoroughly good, then you would pray more. You'd pray probably all the time. Because you would really think he's good. But the reason I think we don't pray is we're not sure he's going to even answer me. I'm not sure he even listens to me. And if I think that, then I'm not sure I think God's really that good. So I would say most of you and even myself have in the back of my mind that God does not do everything out of sheer goodness. He holds back. Why is this? I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter, two, chapter 4. I often go to this in my sermons because I think this is one of those verse, verses that opens your eyes to why we do what we do. So 2 Corinthians 4, I call it a filter verse. It's one of those verses that tells you the truth about why things are the way they are. And now listen closely what it says says, um, he's talking about the unbeliever in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He says, in their case, meaning the unbeliever, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded their minds. So Satan is a liar. He's blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So Satan's objective is to blind our minds to the goodness of God, to the light of God, to the pure beauty of God. We don't see Him for who He is. So in a way, what Satan does daily is he distorts our image. He causes us to doubt God's goodness. That's what he does every day. He does this in two ways. He leads us to believe that God is selfish. That He's restrictive. He doesn't want our joy. He kind of like he wants us to be children that are seen and not heard and don't mess up. God just is, he's self-absorbed, doesn't want to be bothered because all he cares about is himself. And so like for instance, when we read a verse like give God glory, some of us are like he's so egotistical. Some people think that God's an egotist. Why do we got to give him praise all the time and 
Why do we got to give Him glory? Because, it's really simple. Giving Him glory is the best thing for us. Because He's the best thing for us. Imagine a plant. A plant, the best thing for a plant isn't just water, but it's also the sunlight. It loves it when the clouds dispel so the light is direct because the light is the best thing for us. And light is radiant, so the plant loves it when the sun is radiant. Loves it. In the same way, we live, we move, we have our being in God because we have been made to live off of Him. So when He's seen wonderful, it's the best thing for us. Look at it like this. My wife hates this illustration, but you'll, you'll understand. When I was going to Moody Bible Institute, you might have heard it, but when I was going to Moody, I, my eye caught this beautiful lady, dark-haired, brown-eyed. I thought she was... I thought she was Venezuelan because she hung out with all of the missionary kids from like Costa Rica, Guatemala, or Venezuela. And there's this one guy that liked my wife. And his name, it's a weird name, but this was his name. His name was Hamlet. Hamlet. And Hamlet was from Costa Rica and he, he, was, he had machismo. Machismo is that Latin phrase that means Hey, man, I'm all that. You know what I'm talking about, man? And he had his arm around my wife all the time, and I think he liked my wife because she's pretty because a pretty girl makes him feel good. Makes him feel important. So then when I started dating my wife, and she talked about a guy by the name of Hamlet, it drove me crazy because he only wanted her for himself. I would tell my wife often, you need to date me because I am the best thing for you. <laughs> but I meant that in good I meant that all for good reasons because I wanted her good. I cared about her needs. I didn't want her to make me look good. I wanted to take care of her. So when I hear the name Hamlet, that's why I don't read Hamlet anymore from Shakespeare. It drives me nuts. And I don't understand Shakespeare anyhow. Anyhow. But what I'm saying is the reason why God wants us to give Him glory is because He's the best thing for us and He knows He wouldn't be good if He didn't want glory, in other words. He's not selfish. He's great. And then uh, I think the second way we distort God's image is we believe, we are led to believe. I think this is Satan's greatest jab. We are led to believe God is quick to anger. Quick to anger. And slow to forgive. In other words, he wants to punish sin now. He wants to crush the sinner. And he enjoys our condemnation. Every time you sin and you feel guilt, you feel like God is mad at me. He doesn't want, he doesn't like me. He doesn't love me. When that enters your heart right away that's the lie that's the distortion and when you think God is mad at you that quickly God's not good he can't be good you've seen the father that is quickly angry at his kids and they're always walking in eggshells that's not a good father so when you see God with distorted lenses in your mind he's not good and you're not sure you can trust him why would I want to give my life to someone I can't trust? In Matthew 25, there's a very interesting parable. Jesus tells this parable about the parable of the talents. There's three people he gives 
talents to her, sort of like money. He gives one guy ten talents. And he says, I'm going to go away for a while, invest it. When I come back, give me the money from the investment. Gives one guy five talents, tells him the same thing, gives one guy one talent. So the guy who has ten talents invests it, makes more. The owner comes back and said, well done, well done. You're a good servant. Gives the second guy five, he invests it, gets a return. Well done, well done. You're a good servant. Gives the one guy a talent. This guy hid the talent, didn't get anything in return. And the owner's upset and said, why didn't you do that? Listen to the reason why he didn't invest it. He said, master, I knew you are a hard man, so I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground. In other words, he viewed the master as untrustworthy, hard. So the way you view the master matters most. Did you know most atheists and agnostics grew up in churches where they view God as harsh, hard, legalistic, always angry, always upset, never forgiving? It's painting God as somebody you can't trust, that he's not good, but God is slow to anger, abounding in love, rich in grace, generous. He wants to give you amazingly, abundantly, above anything you can ask for, hope, or think. Try to outthink God. Try it. So here's the problem, though. A lot of people don't trust God. Yeah, they'll say he's, he exists. Okay, God exists. And oh, all right, I'll give, you, I'll give it to you. God's good. But here's the problem. Is he powerful? This question may be the most important of the other two because we can easily acknowledge his existence and his goodness, but does he have the ability to do Anything about all the wrong that is going on? Okay, he's good and he exists, but why is there so much bad? Is God all-powerful or inept? Either he's all-powerful or he's not. There's no middle ground on this either. Is he the sovereign Lord or is he an old grandpa that's got achy joints and can't get off the couch anymore? I think a lot of people view God as an old, blind grandpa. One scholar writes, before, being before creation and being the active force to bring all things into being implies God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And He's infinite in wisdom. Since He made this work, this ecosystem, and the way it works, He knows everything. He is creator, creator of all matter and mind, and because He is before all things, all things depend on Him to exist. Now we could say that's a great statement, that's a true statement, but, but what do you think? Do you believe that? Do you agree, or do you, do you think that God can't handle your problems? Do you live in fear? Do you worry a lot? Are you always concerned? When things don't go your way, do you get angry? Do you blame God? So if you do any, if those things characterize you, I'm, and the human experience is, yeah, we worry, we get anxious, but do they characterize you? 
Are you a worrywart? Are you always living in anxiety and fear? If that's true, then you really don't believe God is either good or powerful. You just don't. It's weird when people get mad at God. I, I just sometimes I don't understand it. As if He wronged them. And I, and I understand the human experience is in the moment. Yeah, I, I understand that. But to place blame on God is really saying He's not good. Or He's not able. Sure, He's strong, but not that strong. Or you're believing what I'm going to call the three strongest whispering lives of Satan. We find them in Psalm 10. Go to Psalm 10. Psalm 10 are the lies that Satan whispers to the proud heart. And I want you to listen to these lies because I'll tell you what. These three lies are what often degrade the person of God to us. So look at Psalm 10. It begins, it says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? So he's asking the question, Lord, I don't get it. Where are you? My life's crumbling. Don't you care? Why do you hide? It's a doubt of God's goodness and ability. Where are you? And so it's talking about the proud man. Verse 2, he's arrogant. Verse 3, he boasts. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, he does not seek God. There's no room for God. Verse 5, his ways seem to prosper. He seems to be rich all the time. And in verse 6, listen to what his heart says. The proud man's heart says, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. So in other words, here's the lie man, I'm doing just fine on my own. I don't need God to take care of me. I'll be just fine. The best way to buy into Satan's lies is you view your money, you view the government, or you view things as the most important thing that's going to take care of you in life. People who are worried about money are actually kind of... Um, Denying their trust in God. People get so hot about the government all the time. Oh, if we just get the right guy in office, is kind of a sign that God isn't in control of all things. The more you have, the more calm and content you become is a sign that you're believing this lie that's dependent upon me. The less you have, the less you really believe God can take care of you. The second uh, lie that Satan speaks into is found in verse, what verse is that? Go to the next one. Verse 11, yeah, verse 11. Look at verse 11. The proud man says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it, meaning I can sin, I can sin, and I'll get away with it. I can fool God. I know I can sin and get away with it. In fact, I do every day. God doesn't see. He doesn't know. If you are thinking you're getting away with your sin or you're continuing to do it, what you're denying is God's ability to judge. His sovereignty. You think he's a pushover. He's a powder puff. He's an old grandpa who's going senile. 
And then the final lie, look at the final lie is found in verse 13. And this is the most prevalent lie most agnostics buy into is, listen to what it says. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. Here's what the lie is. I will never be brought to judgment. I'll be just fine. If I die, I'll be fine. It always made me kind of squirm when I heard um, the Grateful Dead had this song. It's, and I've, I've heard people say it, and it makes me squirm. Hey, man, I may be going to hell in a bucket, but at least I'm enjoying a ride. Really? What they're saying is, I'm not going to be called to account. I'm not going to be called to account. I'll be fine. People arrogantly believe that. Like even if you do most funerals, most everybody says, no matter who dies, they're in a far better place now. Are they? Are they? Really? It's like we're not allowed to ask that because you've got to be proper at funerals. But sometimes up here I want to say, as a pastor, I want to say, are they really? That wouldn't go off too well, so I don't say that too often. And you might not want me to do your funeral from now on, but really? You're not going to be called to account? So then this Bible lies, and so, or God's just not powerful enough. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. Maybe one of the best quotes written in the last hundred years. C.S. Lewis writes, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. So he said, people used to view God like this. He's the judge, they are the one on trial. However, for the modern man, it's flipped. The roles are reversed. Man is the judge, and God is the one on trial or in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge. I mean, we'll we'll give God some slack. If God would just have a good defense or being the God who allows war, poverty, and disease, if he can give a good argument, we're ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but here's the important thing, C.S. Lewis writes, that man now is the judge on the bench and God is in the dock. And it's so true. People feel they have the right to slam God, ridicule God, criticize God because they're the judge. That's not the way the Bible presents it. That's not in the beginning God. I personally believe each of us have a little bit of these. We're not sure God exists. We're not sure He's good. We're not sure He's powerful. We've got to examine our hearts. Because how we believe those things changes our behavior. Changes our anxiety. But God is there, He is good, and He is all-powerful. That's why it says, look at a, listen to Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 sums it up like this. It says, without faith, that means the way you view God. It's not in, you know, God, this, no, they, this verse knows God exists, but it's how you view God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And look at what faith includes, three things. Whoever would draw near to God must, number one, believe that He exists. And that He rewards. That word reward has two parts to it. That He's good, that means if He gives a promise and you 
you follow that conditional promise, He'll reward you. He's good. But also reward has the implies that He has the ability to fulfill the reward. He is able. He's powerful. So God exists, that He's good, and that He's able. And He wants to reward those who seek Him. Right now, we are actually standing before one of the greatest promises. It is the greatest promise He ever gave. Here's the promise. It's got, it includes this bread that's broken and this, this is like juice, but it represents blood that has been shed. Here's the promise. That I exist, but I'm holy is what really what we're going to learn in the book of Genesis. God is a fearsome, holy God. And if you sin, you deserve to die. We'll learn that right in chapter 3. Now God loves us so much that He put somebody in place of us to take the penalty of death. He sent somebody who really lived, who existed. His name was Jesus Christ. And even Scripture said Jesus Christ of Nazareth, so you know He came from a real place in a real time. Jesus died and He died had his body broken, and that's what this bread represents, his broken body. And then it says he shed his blood, so he's whipped and blood was spilled for us. If you believe this by faith, that not only he exists, but my sins will be forgiven forever, he will reward us who seeks him, you are one of his children. And so faith is exactly like eating this. It's receiving it as if it's true. I believe He exists. I believe He's good and I believe He rewards me. If you believe that, you're invited to this table. Please participate. But if you don't, be very careful.